We're going to be picking up in a series that we've been in and that we launched last week titled Spread. So we're going to be opening our Bibles to Acts chapter 10 this morning as we continue. And the subtitle of this series, Spread, uh, is, is this, How to Live When You No Longer Have Home Court Advantage. How to Live When You No Longer Have Home Court Advantage. You know, last week we talked a little bit about um, home, home Court Advantage um, really what it means when other people are cheering you on. It really truly does make a difference. Many times sports teams, what, they have better records at home than they do when they're on the road, when they have people that are up against them. And sometimes in our world, it just feels like that's us, right? It doesn't always feel like we in our personal lives have home court advantage. Sometimes it's just, man, it's like, let's just be honest, life is hard. Sometimes in our career, in our workplace, it feels like, man, we're pushing up against an uphill battle, right? Sometimes even in our education, in our schooling, it just feels like, man, there's things that we're trying to pursue, and it just feels like sometimes everybody's against us. Many times even in our faith, right, as a follower of Jesus or, or somebody that's just trying to be on the right path with their lives, it just feels like there, there's, there's so much surrounding us. So much of us feel like, man, it just feels like we don't have much on our side. Many times it feels like we're just alone in this fight. And, and this morning, the title specifically for this morning, I titled Willing to Change as we look into Acts chapter 10 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The, the, the scriptures are going to be up on the screen for you to follow along. But I want to kind of start us off around this idea of change. Because we live in a world where times are changing. We live in 2019 where, if you haven't noticed, people are digesting information a lot differently than they were before, right? Many people say we are living in what's called the digital age. Um, newspaper companies, the way that people digest their information, are starting to adjust, right? And some of the, there's been some recent even local changes in our own city about uh, with our newspaper, right? Just the way that people live and the rhythms of life are changing because we live in this kind of instantaneous digital age, right? And it makes us feel really uncomfortable. For those of us who, who have lived on this earth a little bit longer, we've seen so much transition in our culture and our technology that it sometimes gets uncomfortable to face the newness of what our world currently looks like. But it's interesting because we're looking at the book of Acts in the series, and we're looking at this amazing thing that Jesus commissioned it called his church that was empowered by God to do the things of Jesus. To once again make earth look a little bit more like heaven in Jesus' name. And it feel, it, 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 this, this small little group of people, man, it felt like the world was up against them. This was a mo Roman governed and dominant place, place in the world that, man, they did not have home court advantage as the, as the people of God. A small handful of people that was multiplying and was spreading. And what's interesting is... God gave this change to his people. What was once reserved for the Jewish line of faith, the people of Israel now is beginning to expand beyond that. And God's like, hey, you, we need to spread my message about how much I love this world that we live in, and, and you are going to be the vessels. So it felt like an uphill battle. It had to have for this early church, right? And we see Jesus pushing people deeper, deeper into a culture that they're not used to. Go find the people that are disconnected. Go find the people that don't know about my love for them and get them connected. How uncomfortable is that? But once again, time and time again, we see that progressive uncomfortability rise as the book of Acts goes on, as Jesus pushes his church into the four corners of the world. And God is like, spread. Spread the good news of Jesus out. So this morning, we're going to look at the massive implication 
on implications on one man's willingness to change. And last week we talked about this one man, Peter, which a lot of people look to as a hero in the faith. But it's, I love just getting to see the struggle and the tension of what this man, who was a Jewish man, used to all the Jewish traditions, what that looked like as his life crashed into this new worldview of what Jesus saw for the world and the future of the church in the world that we live in. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 9, right at the end of Acts chapter 9. I had you guys turn to 10. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 9, the last verse into, into chapter 10. And we're going to follow along this morning, and we're going to break this down and hopefully get some practical application out of it. So Acts chapter 9, verse 43, it says, And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them about he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon in the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Let's pray this morning before we dive in a little deeper. Lord, thank you so much for your grace over this church. Lord, your protection. And Lord, this morning, would we, would we grasp what it means for our lives to be everyday missionaries? Lord, that the the, the big event, Lord, is not this morning, but the big event is, is the lives that each and every one of us lead. Lives that are able to make a positive difference or, or sometimes a negative difference in our society. And Lord, we want to choose you. We just think about your encouragement in the scriptures that say that we overcome evil by doing good. So Lord, would we be connected with the things of you knowing that, Lord, you've called us to be people that spread the good news of you, Lord. Spread the goodness of God, your heart, to a world that sometimes feels so broken, sometimes feels like it's in disunity. So, Lord, help us find that as we feel like many times we live in a world that's very uncomfortable according to what we see and the heart that you see towards it. So, Lord, help us glean from many things today as we learn from this section of, of your scriptures. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. So, we're going to break this down this morning, and I love it because we have two main visions that happen for two men. And both of them, the destination is one thing. The destination is Jesus. Now, in the, in the weeks to come, we're going to see how this kind of unfolds. But I love the tension, and I think we're going to learn a lot from the tension of what it sometimes feels like when our backs are up against the wall in our lives and glean from a few things of what maybe Peter, this, this guy who is up against the wall in terms of his faith, going out into uncomfortable, uncharted territory, felt like, as well as this character Cornelius. So let's look back at this character Cornelius in Acts chapter 9 verses 43 through 10 to those first few verses let's make a few observations 
And it says this, as it's up on the screen, and Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. Now, if you were here last week, we, we talked about this trajectory. That e- even though Peter was a Jew, he was on this tr- new trajectory away from the comfortability of Jerusalem that he was used to, to go and spread and connect those who were disconnected with the truth, the power, and the love of Jesus. So the last place that he ended up was this kind of coastal town, Joppa, right? And as he was farther away from Jerusalem, he's, he's in this place, and then we are introduced to this new character in, ch- in verse 1, and it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, Caesarea was this coastal town a little bit farther away, but Caesarea represented this coastal town that dealt a lot with trade and harbor trading related to Rome. So there was a dominant Roman presence and culture that affected the entire region during this time, so it was normal for there to be a little bit of a military presence. So this is what Cornelius represented, somebody that was protecting the goods and the ins and the outs of what was coming through this coastal town called Caesarea, right? So this is the reason why this guy even existed in this region. He and his, all his family, we learn a little bit more about him, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Like, what does that mean, that that God-fearing idea? Well, God-fearing was a label for many people that were not Jewish during that time, but they saw how good God was. They saw the God of Israel and their culture and during their time, and they said, you know what? When it comes to that God, I'm on board with that God. What, what he was called, what, what we could kind of generalize this character as Cornelius, he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. He was within the lump of everything kind of else. The Greek people that were not included in the family line of what it meant to be Jewish. Everybody else outside of God, God's people, right? So we have this character who's kind of one of these outsiders with a lot of influence, as a person that has a direct trade route, right, to Rome, to Italy, to the resources of a culture that was dominating during this time. But he was known to be a person that was God-fearing, but he was not a full convert, and he didn't adhere fully to the Jewish way of life. He saw this God. He recognized him. He prayed to this God. I love that. It clues us in on prayer. This theme of prayer that we'll see comes up once again in these scriptures. Let's keep moving on. So we move on in Acts chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, and it says, One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! So we got this guy, right? He's outside of the Jewish lineage. He he sees this God. he, He relates to this God. He prays to this God. And this God literally shows up and begins to speak to him as an outsider. Cornelius stared at him in fear. Can you imagine? What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. I love that. God just affirms him. It's like, I see you. I see you in your life. Your life doesn't fit the religious mold, but God affirms him. It says, now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. So we have this angel. We have this heart of God who sends a messenger to this man who is disconnected and is giving him the route giving him the steps of how he can get connected to the truth of what Jesus had proclaimed to the world, about Jesus coming to the earth, dying not just for Jewish people, but for everybody. And God loves Cornelius, this outsider enough, to give him the steps to get connected with that truth and that love and that grace of Jesus. 
But isn't it interesting that you're like, well, God is big enough. He could have showed up, been big God, said, I love you. I've died for you, right? But he gives him steps. And the steps don't involve just God showing up, revealing himself in a special way. But the steps involve another imperfect human being. Can we grasp that for a second? I think I just want to stop and pause there. I think for some of us in the room, we sometimes feel like our, our lives are anything but extraordinary, right? But here's what I know. God chooses ordinary people each and every day to do extraordinary things. That same God sees us sometimes in our ordinary, what we would classify as our mundane life. And he believes, sees, and has vision for more in our lives. He entrusts us to be people that are a part of his purposes, his mission for the world. Because you're like, yeah, God's big enough to just kind of show up and robotically just make a proclamation because he is big, he is good, he is grand. But our God is a relational God. That's not how he plays his cards. He plays them in a way that shows this love story, how much he loves and relationally wants to pursue the people that he loves on the earth so so very much. And the most mind-blowing thing about it, as imperfect people, he allows us to join in on his perfect mission for the world. Amazing to think about that. Let's continue in Acts chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. It says, he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, I love this, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. I want to I zoom in on this because we have a guy who's kind of disconnected from the religious mold during this time, who hasn't heard about Jesus, who, who, who's relating to God, has a respect for God, who, who prays to God, but is still on the outskirts, right? He's not on the inside of, of, of the community necessarily. And God speaks to him, and his posture is one that I think we need to look into. His posture is God speaks and immediately in awe of God's goodness, of what God was relationally pursuing for his life, it says he immediately, man, he gets up, he calls two of his servants, and he pursues that next step of what God was saying. Here's what's going to get you connected to me more, right? There's a posture that Cornelius has where he's immediately gets up, sees a revelation from God, and goes and pursues it in the best way that he knows how, given his status and influence as a part of this Italian military, right? Let's continue. Then we, we, we go to the second vision, the second party involved, Peter. Picking up in Acts chapter not, 10, verses 9 through 11, it says, About noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. There it is again. Prayer. It seems like prayer was being valued so much between both of these parties, right? Which, once again, kind of clues into me that prayer sets the stage for the miraculous. Sometimes we devalue prayer, but here's, here's what I know is prayer is always and constantly throughout the biblical narrative and how we relate to God, setting the stage for God to do and break in with the miraculous, right? Verse 10, he became hungry and wanting something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. You ever just, like, been really, really hungry and, like, the Taco Bell commercial comes on? You know what I'm saying? Or, like, Domino's. Like, they just zoom in and the pizza just looks perfect. And then you get it and it's like, okay, whatever. But it still tastes good, right? Um, they just model those things so well. But you can relate to it. It's like hunger. 
Come on, this is, this is something that hasn't changed for 2,000, 3,000 years. This hasn't changed in the human experience. We get hungry, right? And we, so we relate to this. We're like, yeah, I know what it means. It feels like to be hungry. It's the way Peter felt. And while the meal was being prepared, it says he fell into a trance, and he sees heaven open, and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. This is interesting. This is interesting for us as the readers. But it's also interesting to think about what that might have implied for somebody who received a vision from God. Because on, from Peter's perspective, things that came from the heavens, when the heavens opened up, that usually meant it was something related to the realm of God. But we as the readers, if you've been reading this narrative, we are in the book of Acts right now. The prequel to Acts is the book of Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts in the Bible. So what the book of Acts gives us is this sequel to the gospel of Luke, as Luke penned and observed many things that Jesus did on the earth. And as the reader, we understand this a little bit better than Peter would have. Because when we read through the gospel of Luke, Jesus gets baptized and the heavens open up. And what do we see? We see Father God speaking. He said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we see the Holy Spirit appear like a dove and land and bestow upon Jesus. We understand, man, the things of God come from heaven fully and completely. And then later on in the Gospels, we got these guys that get offended because they basically turn away from Jesus. And Jesus' followers, they get together and they're like, hey, Jesus, can we call fire down from heaven and basically burn up all these people that you're opposed to? Can we burn up the people that are against you? Can we burn up the people that aren't on the inside with us? Can we call judgment down and burn these people up from heaven? And Jesus basically rebukes them and says, as we could kind of paraphrase, when it comes to the heavens opening, the things of God do not include judgment falling upon people that are disconnected from me. See, we as the readers, we understand if it's coming from heaven, it's God. And we've been clued in up to this point, it's God's heart coming from heaven. So Peter, he's seeing something come from heaven, and he's going to have a little bit different of a perspective. Let's continue in verses 12 through 14. It says it contained, so this sheet comes down four corners. What an interesting vision, you know. I think everybody pictures this differently in their minds, right? This sheet is coming down from heaven. It says he sent, or it says it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. So here's this moment, right? It's coming from heaven. This is God's realm. But the things that are coming down are kind of pushing up against what he's used to. So what is Peter's response to this voice that, is this God, right? Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. Here he goes. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. We have a character named Cornelius up to this point whose posture, when God reveals himself, goes. He's like, I, I want to get closer. I just, God just revealed himself powerfully, and I want to run towards that. And then we have this other character who's kind of been on the inside, and, and he, his posture looks a little bit different, right? God reveals himself in a vision, much in the same way, a little bit different, but this character, Peter, he has reservations. And I love it because this is where the Bible just gets really beautiful, where we can make some bigger connections. He is in Joppa. 
And if you're familiar with the Old Testament Joppa, there's a story about this guy named Jonah who is called to go reach people that are different than he is, that are not included in the family lineage of God. And what does he do? He resists when he's in Joppa, takes a boat, and goes and tries to get away from it. Well, if you've ever been in children's church, if you've read the story before, you know that this large fish swallows him up and says, no, 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 you're going towards the people that are disconnected from me. So we have Peter in the same type of a situation, the same geography, being really challenged with the same type of decision. A guy on the inside being called out to other people that are disconnected from this family of God, that God's heart is trying to pull in so desperately. And he's resistant. He's got this vision, this same vision that as we read in the Old Testament, as we read stories that so many of us and some of us have heard before, like Jonah and the whale, sets the stage for a very similar and paralleled type of situation. But we, we need to understand the implications here. Because from Peter's perspective, he carries a lot of baggage with him in terms of the way he's lived his life. What he's inheriting in terms of the situation. For Jewish people, there is some pretty rigid food laws. These things were food laws that marked them out differently from their Jewish neighbors. Anyone who wasn't included in the Israel family line, those who chose to not fully convert to the Jewish way of life, created this distance between those who were on the inside and those who were on the outside. If you can't eat the same food as your neighbors, you can't have table fellowship together. You can't sit at the same table as somebody else. You can't sit across in an intimate space and have fellowship with those who are different. Yeah, you can, you can relate to those people. You can be cordial to those people. But just even naturally based on our food rhythms, you couldn't get into this intimate space that each and every one of us has to because we are human beings that are needing to eat meals and have fellowship and have community around food. People you sit down with are family. But the Jewish family up to this point had been called to be separate. And they were to bear witness as people that don't compromise on what God had told them to do. Up to this point, their witness was to be people that said, we, we, we're obedient to God. We're obedient to God and we have to separate ourselves and not have this fellowship simply even because of the food laws that God had set. But it's interesting because those who were separated... Those who are on the outside, the Gentiles, much like this character Cornelius, regularly complained about the Jews, their unwillingness to eat. They didn't understand it. They viewed it as a sign of separatism. They viewed it as a sign of hatred of humanity. But Jews, in response to that hatred, would say, no, we're good citizens. Why do you have such a big problem with us? We're just being separate, we're being obedient, and we're still being good citizens. You do your thing, and, and we're going to continue to do ours, right? It's interesting, because when you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you see sinners having table fellowship many times with Jesus. And many times when he chose to do that, what did he get from some of the religious people? Hostile response. People that were questioning, why would you sit at the same table of those who have been deemed as unclean? 
Why would you sit at the same table that we have been separated from because of our food laws? And it got abused in a way that became unhelpful and distant from God's heart, from humanity. So let's continue into the kicker, the last couple verses here in Acts chapter 10 as we, we're going we're gonna to continue on and hopefully make some helpful observations this morning. It says, the voice spoke to him a second time. So Peter's like, no, I don't eat unclean things. God, I think, right? But the voice spoke to him a second time. It says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. I love the theme of threes. You know, you read in the Gospels, Peter was the same guy who denied Jesus three times. So once again, we see this beauty in the biblical narrative, the different themes, different parallels that clue us into God's heart, how much God loves us and pursues us and wants us to be people that get on board with how he sees the world, how he sees things. But God makes this bold proclamation in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. He makes this bold proclamation that would have been so different from those who had gotten so rigid maybe in some of their Jewish tradition and heritage. He gives us a challenge and he corrects Peter of all prejudices. All prejudices become confronted in terms of what Jesus was speaking. What God has made clean, you must not call unclean. You know, I got to be honest, I think many times I'd, I'd read this scripture and I would relate it back to the food. Okay, God is opening up the door for food to be digested. Hey, like, guess what? Jewish people, you can enjoy bacon now. God's calling it clean, right? Like, you can enjoy all of these different things that you once couldn't. I love this sheet that comes down from heaven. It, it, it's, a, it's a whole slew of different animals. It's, it's the clean mixed with the unclean, right? It, it gives us this powerful illustration of what God is deeming clean. But I, I, would, I would encourage us this morning, this, this isn't talking about food. The more and more we identify the, the distance that existed between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. This is about people. This is about people being separated that God was trying to merge together because God's heart is not for food laws and how he's going to change the world. God's heart is for the distance that exists between different people, the uncomfortability between different people, the prejudices that exist between people, and he wants to break those things down in Jesus' name. Here's what's so interesting. Peter knew Gentiles could be saved. Once again, we see time and time again in the Old Testament, we see different people outside of God's people find saving faith in God. We see Ruth, the whole book's dedicated to this Gentile, the story of this Moabite who actually relates to God, connects with the God of Israel. We think about the Ninevites, these people that Jonah was resisting to go towards, disconnected that God was like, they're on the outside of this whole thing called Israel, this whole Jewish faith, but I want you to be the messenger, the advocate, to bring them on the inside, to hear about God's heart for them. And we learn in that book that they repent and they turn to God. See, Peter knew, based on his heritage, that Gentiles, these other people, could be saved. 
But what he was learning was something so profound. They're not unclean. He wasn't learning that God can find them. God can reveal himself to them. God's big enough to be a big God to include, yeah, my comfort zone and the uncomfortability. But God was confronting this idea that these people have been deemed unclean, meaning separate. And God was encouraging those barriers of prejudice to be broken down in Jesus' name. There's an implication that I want us to grasp this morning that I think is really helpful. And here it is. There is table fellowship with everyone. As a follower of Jesus, this is a huge implication of what's happening in the book of Acts. Out of the words of God himself, he's saying there's something new to what he's done. There's table fellowship with everyone. The implications are, I love it, communion. We celebrated communion last week. We do it once a month as a church. But it represents the blood of Jesus as we take a cup of grape juice. It's kind of like, hey, we're just taking our cup of grape juice. It's kind of like we get into the rhythms of that. But it represents the blood of Jesus that's universal, meaning Jesus welcomes anybody and everybody to his table to have fellowship, a place of intimacy where you are are known by God, where you're relationally intimately connected with another person because you're dumbing down all and getting rid of all the sounds of the world and you're getting into deep relationship with another person across in relational intimacy. What the table represents is many times diluted in terms of what it represented today, but for back in the day it represents this intimate fellowship And the implication here is there is table fellowship with everyone. If you carry and bear the weight of saying, I am a follower of Jesus, you can't be exclusive. You can't be exclusive. That's not an option because Jesus deemed this to be clean. And there's a second implication. There is a mission to everyone else. Peter was like, okay, I'm comfortable in this insider thing, but now he's being challenged. He's gone. He's on a new trajectory. He's meeting with people, but now he's really getting challenged in his uncomfortability because God's saying, no, 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 no. It's time to understand that those who have been deemed, you have considered unclean for so long, Jesus is doing a new thing, and those people are the very people I'm sending you to. Those people matter, and I'm after them, and I've set his plan into motion ever since sin entered this world for me to finally, at the pinnacle of this moment, my heart to come through for you to understand this is the game plan through what Jesus has done. Not through what we've done in our own human might, but simply because Jesus chose to die on the cross for us. See, Jesus ushered us into this thing called the New Covenant, or the New Testament, this last one-third of the Bible that we read. And in this New Covenant, Gentiles, the other, are no longer unclean. And God is persuading Peter to be this agent of change in the unfamiliar changing of his surroundings. So here's our application point this morning that I really want us to grasp. Are you willing to change to be the change? This section of scripture clues us into this tension that this insider was feeling. He had a decision to make. Was he willing to change his own very prejudices against a people historically and systematically that had been created within the Jewish faith that now Jesus, the voice of God, was breaking down. I think it's so interesting because Peter was hungry. 
Peter is literally hungry, and God gives him food. But he resists. But I think this is so true about us today. If you're a church person, or maybe you're not, for many of us, we are hungry for unity. But there's something always pulling us back. There's something always that's tugging on us to tempt us to not join in deep down eternally what God has spoken within us to be a unified people. We're going to always be tempted to pull back and say, you know what, God, let's let those people be. Whoever those people are in the worldview that you have that you've created, maybe within your own bubble. Peter's initial response was no. And it's very interesting because his framework of no was citing the old. His understanding of why he would say, surely not, Lord, is based on the laws that had been spoken to him in what we would call the law or the Old Testament. But Jesus was writing something new. And for us to transition into that newness of what God has spoken, it, it takes a willingness for us to change. It takes a humility to lay all of our prejudices down and build a theology, build an understanding of God based on the new covenant of what Jesus has spoken for us as his witnesses today. So I want to challenge us as we conclude this morning. What if you labeled as unclean? Church people, what have you labeled as unclean? Are those people a candidate for God's grace? Are you willing to change to be a change agent for God? See, uh, it's interesting because if you were here last week, we talked about other people's problems. And somehow other people's problems sometimes overwhelm us because there's a never-ending need of human problems, right? But we as the people of God need to view those problems as opportunity for God to break in. For us to be vessels, to pray miraculous prayers and see breakthrough in our workplaces, see breakthrough in our lives, right? But this week, we're, we're talking about our own problems. we got to confront our own prejudices. we got to let God do some surgery in terms of what he spoke early on in the early mission of his church to break down some of the racism that had existed within Peter's own very heart against other people that had been playing out systematically to help separate two groups of people. See, being a Christian and knowing God can save other cultures isn't enough. I think sometimes we think of other cultures and we think, well, yeah, overseas. We are a melting pot here in the United States of America. There are people that look, speak, act differently than we do in our own very backyard because we are a nation of diversity. And, and, and what God is confronting in these scriptures is it's not enough to keep people at a distance and say God will take care of them. But to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, what God is confronting in these, this section of Scripture is we must fellowship with the other. We must. We don't have a choice. We must advocate for unity, not by taking a passive stance of saying, yeah, God can save them. We must be people that actively choose to fellowship with those who make us feel uncomfortable. Like the Gentiles, there are people that see prejudice in the church and say, it seems like they hate humanity. A lot of people have detached the word hate to the church today. And this is what, I, as like Jews, many times a Christian response to that very issue is, you know what? Well, I'm a good Christian, and those people just need to get over it. The same posture the Jews took. Well, God can save them, but I'm, I'm going to keep my distance. I'm, gonna, I'm good. Me and God are good. But God is confronting 
these very prejudices. Can I say this this morning? Being a white pastor in a small town in 2019 and leading a church where minority cultures can attend. Yeah, you can attend. We welcome everybody. How many of you guys know that that's very different than leading a church where minority cultures are welcomed, celebrated, and championed because of their diversity and because of their rich cultural heritage? Very, very different postures. Life is so hard. Many times we feel like we're alone, but here's what I know. God is calling us to be people willing to change so that God can spread. In our workplaces, can we commit to being people that be the change, be the bigger person? Committing to be people in our schools, in our education, the things that we're pursuing, we're saying, we're going to be the change. We're going to be the bigger person because God has us. He's empowering us to lean in on him when it doesn't feel like we should because it feels like it's one versus a million. In our relationships, we're going to be the change. We're going to be the bigger person by his grace, his power. In our faith and how we execute our faith and be a witness to the world, we're saying, we're going to be the change. We're going to be the bigger people because God gives us the grace and strength to do that. Are we willing to change, to be change agents in the midst of the unfamiliar? Because God wants nothing more than for his love and his grace to be used through imperfect human beings to give us a vision for our life when we don't feel extraordinary as ordinary people to spread this love that he has for a world he sees and loves to anyone and everyone. Can we commit to that as a church and truly be willing to change? We pray this morning.